0: Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, let me pray for us before we hop into today's message. Uh, God, our good and gracious Father, Lord, you are good to us uh, even when we can't understand your goodness. Lord, you are present with us even when we can't sense your presence. So, Lord, I pray that this time would be a time that is helpful for all of us and uh, a time where you meet us exactly where we need to be met. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and Amen. Uh, I have two allegiances, um, one stronger than the other one as it pertains to schools. Uh, I went to undergrad in Morgan State in Baltimore and I bleed orange and blue. Uh, but I also went to law school in Durham, North Carolina at North Carolina Central. And, uh, yes, shout out to the one person who's excited about that. Uh, and I love North Carolina. Like, North Carolina is a beautiful place. Shout out to my fam in North Carolina watching this right now online. Uh, Some of the nicest, sweetest people that I have ever met are from Durham, North Carolina. Now, the only thing sweeter than the people in North Carolina is the sweet tea, because they put like a pound (laughs) of sugar in each ration of tea. And when I was in North Carolina for three years, I I feel like the North Carolina ethic just started to change who I was a little bit. I'm from New York, but Durham kind of made me nicer for a little bit. (laughs) And uh, I'll never forget like one of my first days back in New York, uh, I was studying for the bar exam and I was taking a review class downtown. So every day I would go to 42nd Street and wait for the shuttle to go to where I had to get to. And I was still acting like I was in Durham. So I was in New York City, but I was still living like I was in Durham, and I was all nice to people on the subway. I was like, oh, just go ahead. You can go in front of me. And I was talking to people, and they were looking at me like I was crazy, like I was trying to sell them something. And um, I'll never forget one day, I was standing on a platform, and I let like three or four people go, and this older woman moves. Like, she literally moved me out the way. She was like, boy, move, and she just pushed me (laughs) out the way. And I realized, like, yo, J.O., you're not in Kansas or North Carolina anymore. And in New York City, you have to do things differently. Like, it doesn't work for you to navigate New York City like you would Durham. They're, like, they are different places. There's different ways of, of doing things. Things that are perfectly normal in New York City would be the most offensive thing you can do in Durham. When people try to sell me stuff on the street, I have AirPods in, I just walk straight. I don't say no, I just walk. If you did that in another context, people will look at you like, yo, that's, that's really messed up. But in New York City, that's the norm. AirPods in, invisible mode to, to the world around you. So one of the most helpful ways that scripture gives us to think about how you should live your life is that you no longer live in the same kingdom in which you used to live in. And that there's a, you have been moved from one place, not just geographically, but spiritually, into another kingdom, into another way of doing things. And in the same way that it would be really foolish for you to try to live in New York City like people live in other parts of the country or parts of the world, it would be foolish for you to try to live as a Christian if you have truly been moved into a new kingdom, adopting and using the old ways in which you used to live. So the Bible gives us language on kingdoms. One scripture that I found very helpful is in Colossians. It says this, uh, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, Jesus, has rescued us from the domain of darkness... And he has transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So look at that word in verse 13. He has transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In the same way that a student athlete transfers into a new university, they no longer have the same systems and school and colors of the old school. Scripture says that what Jesus has done is he has taken you out of the old kingdom, the domain of darkness, And he has transferred you into a new kingdom. And listen to this. The new kingdom has new rules. There's a new way of operating. And it will be foolish for you to try to take the old rules, the old way of life, into the new kingdom of life. And so we've been in this series of Galatians trying to understand what is the gospel, what is the kingdom of God all about, and how might it motivate or change the way that we are living. And today we're going to hop into a portion of scripture that I think is really, really helpful for us, as we seek to live as kingdom citizens uh, of the kingdom of, of the kingdom of of God, so really behind all of this is is two things. Number one, uh, when you approach a book of the Bible, the most helpful thing you can do is simply ask yourself this question: What is this book teaching me about who God is, and what is it teaching about who I am, and what should I be doing as a result? And so we've been going through this book of Galatians, and essentially, whenever we go through a book of the Bible at Renaissance, we toss the Scripture, the keys, and I hop in the passenger seat, and we let it drive us wherever it takes us. And today, we're, st- we're going to uh, be in a portion of Scripture that's talking about something that should be a defining characteristic of how Christians engage with the world, but oftentimes is the opposite from the truth. Today, Galatians is going to point us to a portion of scripture where it talks about conflict, disagreement. How should Christians be marked? Those who belong to the kingdom of God, how should you live your life and how might it be different than the way that you have been doing things in the past? And so uh, there's a lot of people in this room from a lot of different walks of life and we all have different things that come to mind when we think about the concept of conflict and how it should be done. And here's my goal for today. My hope is that this scripture helps to form you to be a person that when conflict comes, not that you go looking for it, but when conflict and opportunities for conflict come in your life, you do it in a way that reflects the beauty of of the gospel and what we've been talking about in the book of Galatians. And so the scripture we're going to be looking at today is in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and a little bit jumping around in chapter 2. Here's what it says. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this letter of Galatians is written by a man named Paul. Paul was a church planter. He helped start all of these churches in the region of Galatia. And there is this budding controversy that's happening, and Paul hears about it. So Paul hops in the Uber, goes to Galatia, and he sees Peter, and he says, I opposed him to his face. Verse 12, it says, for he regularly ate with the gentiles before certain men came from James however when they came he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party we've talked about this a lot in the last couple of weeks but there were two groups of theology two competing interests that were happening in this church there was one group the they were jewish christians who were teaching and preaching that in order for you to be a christian you had to start to follow all of the jewish laws. So laws about circumcision, rituals, and practices that if you really wanted to rock with Jesus, even though you didn't grow up like this, you had to start to adopt these Jewish values and then add Jesus to that at the end of it. Paul comes along and he says, no, you cannot add to Jesus without taking away from Jesus. And Paul writes this letter to clear up one of the church's earliest controversies about uh, really a big theological matter that was going on in the time. It says, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Peter, Cephas, in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? And so in the book of Galatians, we've been looking at the two thieves of the gospel. What does a thief do? A thief takes something from you of importance, of value. Nobody steals something that's whack. When I was, um, <laughs> when I was uh, um, really actually just, I was starting seminary, and I, I took seminary classes in New Jersey at night, and uh, the drive was starting to kill me. And I had one car that I loved. I had this Mustang that I would wash every like three days, and I didn't have anything better to do with my life, and I loved this car, and so I didn't want to put a lot of unnecessary miles on it, and so I bought a hoopty. Y'all know what a Hooptie is? Everybody know what a hoopty is? A beater, for all my people who don't know what a hoopty is. So I bought a hoopty, an uh, old Acura Vigor that had engine problems, um, just to put a lot of miles on it. Now, the Mustang, the joint with rims and a navigation system, I had the, all the alarms you can imagine on that. I never parked it close to anything because I didn't want anything to happen to it. But the hoopty, I would just put that joint anywhere. And I didn't even lock it or worry about it because you probably wouldn't make it that far even if you got in it. Uh, in the first place. So what a thief does, a thief would want to steal something of of value. And what Paul is basically saying in author with the letter of Galatians is there is something that is incredibly valuable for you. The gospel is valuable. It will help you become a Christian. It will help you to live as a Christian. It will help you to grow. And there are these thieves that are trying to empty the power of the gospel in your life. These two thieves are moralism and relativism. Moralism focuses on the outcomes of individuals and relativism focuses on the autonomy of individuals. So we've been talking about this. You can leave this slide up for a little bit. Moralism basically is the belief that the only reason that God will love you is if you do a really good job. And if you cease to do a good job, God's love for you will also stop. That God's love is tied to your moral Behavior. That is moralism, the essence of moralism. Now, I should say a quick caveat. The gospel is not opposed to effort. God and the gospel should motivate you to try to live a life that pleases God and honors him. However, if you reduce the gospel message to a list of to-dos, you will have the most boring, arduous, lifeless relationship with God imaginable. And I know because I'm speaking from experience. Now, you do not have to be a religious person to be a moralist. People on the left tend to be moralistic about social ethics and did you are you on the right side of history? And if you're not, uh really we're moving towards a shame-inducing culture where unless you are correct about name whatever the issue is, there's no way in the world that good things are coming your way. God cannot love you. People in the church, I'm generalizing, tend to be focused on personal ethics. Are you living your life personally in such a way that honors God with your body, with your giving, with all these different things? And if you're not meeting the standard of all of these different things, then we more or less believe and really live out a gospel of performance. And so every single day we hop on the treadmill of performance. Hop on a treadmill of performance to see how fast we can run and we never get anywhere because there is no destination. It's just another day of trying to earn your salvation and it doesn't work. It's exhausting. It turns God from a father to a boss. The goal of the gospel, if you are living and you're more tempted by moralism, here's what I want to tell you. The goal of the gospel is relationship. That's the goal. My wife and I just um, really the last couple of years have been trying to parent our kids in a different way. And we are decades away from being able to give parenting advice. So please see someone else who has older kids who are uh, doing better than what ours are doing right now <laughs> for advice. But one of the things that we're trying to do as, uh, as parents is we're trying to parent our kids for a relationship. And so I heard a pastor say this uh, a number of years ago and it's really stuck with us that the goal of parenting is that your kids will want to be around you and want to be under your influence when they don't have to be around you. And they want to be around each other as well. And so that's changed the way that we parent. It used to be that when my kids say something crazy, I say, you know what? No iPad for three weeks. <laughs> Keep talking crazy. See what happens next. And I was basically parenting correct to correct their behavior. And to, the scariest part about that is it works. A lot of you have been parented like that. Your parents have parented to correct your behavior, and they did. My pops parented. He corrected a lot of behaviors with me. It's, uh, the statute of limitations has run out. I'm, I'm messing with you, about. I'm messing with you. My father's a great man. He's never, um, he, no, actually, no. <laughs> He's never abused me. He's never abused me. But we were corrected in our house. We've been parenting. So we've been trying to parent for relationship, which means when one of my sons says something crazy to his mother, for example, instead of saying, hey, going to the behavior, we say, I want you to think about what that does to our relationship as a family. What does that do to your relationship with mommy when you do that? When you say things like that, uh, we can't be around you because we can't live in a household where someone lives that selfishly. It just messes up our whole family unit. Should we all live like that? And we're trying to parent them to see themselves within a family unit. That relationship is the ultimate goal of our parenting. Now, we still take away the iPad. But after we have first tried to restore, make relationship the number one thing. I'm so afraid for you. I'm so afraid for you that many of you have been formed by a moralistic gospel. That's all about what God is going to take from you if you don't get it right. And that God parents in petty ways, that God's goal for you is moral perfection. God's goal for you is that you will be a child. Oh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we will be called the children of God. One of my favorite shows that I like to watch is like A Guilty Pleasure. These um, shows about like boxers as they get ready for for their big fight and very polarizing character, but Floyd Mayweather, that dude lives lavishly after like a a night of training, he'll go to the strip in Vegas with duffel bags full of hundreds and just go and and buys whatever for his whole team. Everybody's laughing at his jokes. They love him because he's buying them gator bags, $10,000 this, $10,000 that. And he's living lavishly. Scripture says, see what great love the Father has for us. He that he would lavish, he's lavishing on us the gift that we would be called the children of God. Scripture says that that is, such, that is such a privilege, such an honor to be lavished on as a child of God. And moralism reduces that to just whether or not you have done a good enough job. And check this out. If you are leaning towards moralism, that will deeply impact the way that you do conflict because a person who has been shaped by a moralistic gospel, which is focused on outcomes, you'll be more of a troublemaker than a peacemaker. You're more focused on outcomes, so you will see the people in front of you as obstacles, and your desired uh, obstacles to your desired outcome, and you will treat them as such. Oftentimes, it is shame-inducing, and in doing so, you and I will miss out on the core message of the gospel, which is grace. Now, relativism is more focused on the autonomy of individuals, which basically is, relativism is a gospel that says God loves you no matter what, and it doesn't matter what you do. And what that does is it cheapens grace. You know, every single time I say this, I've said the same thing every week, I think, in this message, in this message series. If it's true that Jesus Christ saw humanity trapped in sin, he left the comforts of eternity, came down to earth, goes to the cross, is mocked. Is spit on, crown of thorns placed on his head, he's beaten as he carries a cross up to the hill to purchase our redemption from sin. How is it that we could so comfortably live with the thing that Jesus Christ has died to save us from? And what relativism says and it does is it makes your personal autonomy as the greatest good. Whatever you do, do you. And it cheapens grace. It cheapens what it means to live as a child in the kingdom and if you are shaped by a relativistic gospel and you, say, and you err on the side of autonomy, you'll really avoid healthy conflict at all costs because you really don't believe, you believe that it doesn't matter what people do as long as they're happy doing it. And that cheapens grace as well. And so our hope today as we look through scripture is that we will find better ways to let the gospel be permeated through our life and display what it means to be a gospel community of people formed by the gospel. And one of those things is a big big thing is the way we do conflict, shaped by the gospel. Now, another big reason that conflict is so hard for us is because really the way that it was modeled for us in our families of origin. And so one of my favorite quotes by a mentor of mine, Pete Scazzaro, he says like this, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandma and grandpa are in your bones. We are prone to repeat the ways that our family of origin handled things. So you and I are very prone to, hand, to repeat the way our family of origin handled things. I see this in my own marriage with my wife. Uh, my parents are lawyers, and um, I'll, I'll never forget growing up from the earliest, I mean, really from the time we can start to have arguments, whenever my parents or me and my brother would have a, a disagreement, my mother would just say, all right, you got 10 minutes to prepare your case and present an argument. <laughs> So I'd go in the back, I would put on a suit jacket with my basketball shorts on top, and for 10 minutes, I would write down notes and I would present my case. And really, I was in a loving home, but also I was formed that the way you handled conflict was direct and it was oppositional and it was like you do things in a courtroom. When I got married, (laughs) I kept that same energy, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And in conversations with my wife, um, I would start that. I would literally start the conversation. I no longer do this. Uh, I'm a smart man. I would start the conversation with the phrase that she hates more than anything else in this world: "Is it fair to say?" <laughs> oh no, no, no! Is, is it is it fair to say, on or about June twenty fourth, two thousand and twenty three, you knew what time we had to be ready? I have learned the hard way that that's a terrible way to negotiate relationships. You should never handle personal relationships like you would handle professional ones. Like, in the courtroom, it's fantastic to cross-examine someone, but in life, that someone that you're covenanted to is a terrible way to approach it. My wife, she has mommy sharing this, uh, she grew up in a household where her dad really avoided so many different things. So her dad grew up really, I mean, in her household, she grew up with a father who deeply avoided conflict at all costs. So you had a litigator and an avoider living in the same household. Fantastic outcome. <laughs> and so our families of origin really do shape us, but we now live in a new kingdom. There's a, a new way of doing things. And in order to live to, to live in the kingdom of God, you and I have to learn both what was the messages from our family of origin and also how is God calling me to live today? Here's how a lot of your families of origin may have handled conflict. Um, silent treatment. Lecturing, blaming, attacking, condescension, threatening gestures, name-calling, criticizing, complaining, denying, walking away, placating, pretending like everything is fine even though you know it's not, avoiding, shouting, using terms like always and never and and uh, exaggerating what's happening, anger and rage my least favorite one, passive aggressive behavior, lying, hitting in violence, showing contempt. And so I think really the first task for us today is I want you to think about how did your family of origin handle conflict and how might that still be in your bones today? And what might it look like for you to live as a different uh, in a different way? Here's the thing about conflict. Conflict is inevitable in every single relationship. And Conflict can end very well. It certainly does not always end very well. Conflict should not be something you go in search of. But when there's an opportunity for conflict in your life, how might the gospel motivate you to handle it? Let's turn back to the scripture. So first thing that Paul says in Galatians 2, he says, I opposed Peter to his face. Um, And we can back up a little bit. Really, conflict in the kingdom of God is first relational. It is first relational. So Galatians 1.18 says this. This is Paul speaking. He says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, or Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. So what Paul is basically saying here is that the person that he is presently having a conflict with is someone that he has personally invested in their life. He went to stay with him for 15 days to get to know him, and there are far too many Christians who are known for conflict with people that you you have no relationship with. None. You're just shooting off the hip at strangers, and then you say it's their fault for not listening to you. One of my favorite phrases that I've learned from our Young Life people is something called earning the right to be heard. Earning the right to be heard basically means have I done what's necessary to earn the right to be heard in this person's life? Do they trust me? Uh, Do they know that I have their best interest in my heart? Am I someone that's around them, or am I just a random stranger? And so, for those of you who even maybe have been in avoiding conflicts, I don't want you just to like, I don't want anybody racing into conflict after today's message. You have brunch, like, what he talk about? Conflict. That's what he talked about. <laughs> We're gonna have some conflict today. I want you thinking about, seriously, the people for whom conflict is inevitable and necessary in your life. Um, have you earned the right to be heard in their life? Do they trust you? Do other people speak well of you? And so this requires that we are people of integrity, uh, people that are not moralistically after an outcome, but we're after a person. We're trying to win a person back. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures, uh, actually, no, number two. Um, so first, conflict in the kingdom of God is relational. Number two, conflict is direct. It's direct. Here's what Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Christians have sanctified prayer services that are really all about gossip. And um, there are so many times that people come to me as a pastor and they are deeply hurt by church people. Here's the number one reason people are hurt by church people is because everybody is talking about someone and they have never gone to that person. And one of the surefire ways to really truly ruin a community is through gossip and dissension. It's talking to everyone about the person except for the person who could actually change. Now, in so many different ways, I understand why it's difficult to talk to people about difficult things. But here's what Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins against you, go tell them their fault between you and them alone. If they listen to you, you have one over your brother or your sister. So the first step, it's not always the only step, the first step should be a direct conversation between you and the person. Now, there are certain instances in which it is necessary and helpful because the conversation is so combustible or so difficult that you need a little bit of guidance before you have the conversation. I get that, there are some instances where it would be helpful to talk to someone in advance, so long as the next conversation you're gonna have after that will be to work in the wisdom of that previous conversation into a direct conversation with someone. And as we are, as a community growing, some of you are new here at Renaissance, here's what I hope, especially for my Renaissance people who are members, when you find yourself, not if, but when you find yourself in a scenario where someone is talking about someone else, I want you to stop them and say, hey, hold on for one quick second. Have you talked to them about that first? And say, if they haven't, hey, go talk to them about that first. We'll be praying for that conversation. But to stop really the, the chaos of gossip before it infects a community. And heres it really does devalue people also. Because when I'm talking about you instead of talking to you about something, I'm not even giving you the chance to improve. All I'm doing is dragging your name through the dirt, and you're still going to be really unknowingly going about your day without it. And so conflict in the kingdom of God is, first, uh, relational. It's also direct. Um, And if you can't talk to the person about it yet, don't talk to other people about it yet. Number three, uh, it's of immense or great importance. So in a couple of months, we'll talk about Galatians 6 and what it looks like to talk about other issues uh, with people in the community, but conflict should be about things that are actually important and meaningful. It shouldn't be about things that really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Uh, we had a pretty budding uh, conflict happening with our staff. Our staff is really good, but we had a, a conflict, an opportunity for a major conflict, actually, uh, in a couple of weeks ago. Uh, There are some people on our staff who are really all about Bo's bagels. Uh, I'm an absolute bagel kind of guy. Y'all were nervous. Like, what is he about to say? Absolute bagels is absolute. It's absolutely better. (laughs) A before B. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. Uh, I'm saying that joking around, um, but there are some things that just don't require a conflict. As you do relationship, you'll If you're the type of person that's wanting to to beef about everything, you will wear yourself out very quickly. The same Paul who wrote, who opposed Peter, he says these words in Romans 14. He says, welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak only eats vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him who are you to judge another household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. So in the early church, again, in another setting, there was another controversy happening, which basically was like, can you eat at the halal truck? You know what I'm saying? Like, since this has been sacrificed to unknown gods or idol gods, can you eat this food? And there was a group of people that said, I can't eat that. It was sacrificed to idols. And there's another group of people that said, like, yo, I don't care who that oxtail was sacrificed to. (laughs) That joint is amazing. I'm eating it. And Paul says, don't argue about disputed matters. These were not matters of great importance. And so in your personal relationships, in our church uh, community, and also in theological conversations, I want you to think about conflict should be reserved for matters of real importance. And for Jordan, there are some issues that will lead me to really truly have conflict with someone. Uh, Matters about scriptural authority, like... Uh, Is this belief that's going around, is this something that truly does lower and belittle scriptural authority that I think scripture should have over everyone who claims to be a Christian? Those are matters where I would have uh, a conflict with someone directly about that. In my personal relationships, when there are issues that truly are severing of our relationship or hurting someone else that I believe it's of great importance, those are things that I think reserve... Uh, and should be met with good, healthy, biblical, uh, not passive-aggressive, healthy conflict. And so uh, the last one is rooted in the gospel, rooted in the gospel. And so what the gospel does is it doesn't reduce people to what they do. It it, It builds people up. What Paul does in Galatians, he's not just confronting Peter. He's also building him up for Peter to know who he truly is. And I think at the end of every healthy conflict, you're not just tearing someone down for what they have done, but you're also seeking to build them up, to be reminded of who they really are. That's one of the most powerful things you can do. You know, one of my mentors, uh, Brother Al, when I was doing prison ministry, um, I'll never forget one of the times I taught a Bible study in prison, and I thought I did great. Like, I I had, like, all these great analogies and everything like that, and I'll never forget that day, uh, Brother Al was like, Brother Jordan, Brother Jordan, when somebody says your name twice, you know it's not, (laughs) nothing good is coming. He said, I can tell that you really didn't spend a lot of time in a text. I can tell you didn't do a lot of studying, and before you get back up to, to teach, I want you to make sure you're spending more time deeply investigating what does the Scripture say and I mean, I was blown away. One by his just directness and boldness, but also, he said, "Next week, when you teach, I believe that God has so much more for you, Jordan, than just amens or likes. Uh, you know, I believe God has so much more for you. You're 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 better than that. You're better than being unprepared. You're a lawyer. You're you're smart. You're, he was building me up even in the conflict." And so one of the things that we see here in the scripture, where Peter, what Paul is doing to Peter is he's building him up even in the conflict, reminding him who he is and what he could be. He wasn't just bringing him down. Here's what he says. Uh, Paul is talking to Peter. And he says, and yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says. This is, This was so that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. We're going to talk about justification by faith in a couple of weeks. It's a beautiful topic. But essentially what Paul is doing here in this text is he is reminding Peter that even though Peter was wrong as two left shoes, Peter was justified not by his works but by faith. You know, one quick story about what does it mean to be justified by faith. I've grown up really not knowing how to read the Bible. Uh, I thought the Bible was primarily about me And a number of years ago, I discovered that the Bible is not about me at all. The Bible is about God. It's a story of God unfolding, and we are but a a minuscule extra that doesn't even make the credits. And so I would read stories like David and Goliath through the lens of what does Jordan need to do, and not through the lens of what does this teach me about who God is, who am I, and what should I be living as a result? And so stories like the David and Goliath that many of you have heard of this story before, David and Goliath is about justification by faith. I used to think that it was about being brave in the sight of my enemies. And to a certain extent, yes, that's true. God does want you to be brave. But much more, God was trying to sow a seed into our hearts of our imagination of what it would mean to be justified by faith and not by our works. What is the story of David and Goliath? That there's an entire army who was afraid and incapable of facing this Philistine giant. He's a giant. They've never seen anything so big and bad in their lives. And they're all terrified, wondering, conspiring among themselves, who is going to go and face Goliath? An unlikely hero emerges from the crowd. It wasn't a king, it was a shepherd. David comes with three small stones. Saul, the king, says, here's the armor to fight. And David says, no, I'm going to do it a different way. David goes with his slingshot, kills Goliath. And listen to this. The entire army goes out celebrating and taking all the spoils of war even though they didn't fight. They all got to walk around with jewels on even though they didn't earn anything on their own. It was one person who took the head of the enemy off who won the victory for everybody else. And they got to carry all the spoils of war. They got all the benefits even though they didn't do anything. That's what it means to be justified by faith. That you and I get all the benefits of a life with peace with God, even though we didn't earn it. And Paul knew that truth profoundly and deeply. And he was reminding Peter that, Peter, you're wrong, bro, but you're also loved. The gospel is that you and I are more sinful than we ever would want to admit. And simultaneously, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And in order for us to be people who are not just able to engage with biblical conflict healthily, but also people who are able to receive correction, we need to be rooted in the gospel. Rooted in the gospel that we can be corrected because it's not up to us, it's not all about us. I'll leave you with my favorite scripture in Galatians 2 and twenty and 21. Paul says these words. These are the words that you would need to speak over your life if you're gonna be a person who can receive correction I have been crucified with Christ and I I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died for nothing. Heavenly Father, help us not to set aside your grace. For if righteousness could come any other way, we are wasting our time. Help us to not set aside your grace in our lives. Help us to not set aside grace in the lives of other people where we believe that they too can be changed. That nothing, your hand, is able to reach them in the same way that it reaches us. Help us to know, Lord, that you are powerful and you are with us You are victorious. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.